Hold on to your butts. (laughs) Welcome to episode 56 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast, joined by my co-host Mary, who at 5'4 has also been accused of being Lytle, and likewise is a poet whose poetry always includes the word Nantucket. I am nothing more than Darren. (laughs) Sup, Fincher. (laughs) I didn't know what to say to that. What? Nantucket. (laughs) I'll explain the joke later on. You can No, I know okay, the Nantucket joke. I know the Nantucket joke. Anyways, <laughs> anyways, how are you? What's going on? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I was good until like 30 seconds ago when that bombed. Speaking of Norm Macdonald dying, holy crap. I got the Nantucket thing. I'm kidding. No sense of humor. And that's your problem. No sense of humor. I'll tell you right now. Oh, whatever, fucker. Okay, okay. well, welcome. Welcome we'll aboard. We'll just edit that one out. No, of course we will. Of course we will. So what's going on? You didn't answer my question. What's going on? Well, tonight we are uh, talking, taking things a little bit differently tonight by talking about one specific person. Who's that? William Haynes Lytle. Never heard of him. (laughs) William Haynes Lytle. We're going to have a funny. We've talked about battles. We've talked about all kinds of different things. We haven't really done an episode where we kind of profiled one single person and just stuck with it. Now, we're going to talk about... Uh, Williams Haynes Lytle here in, in detail. They call him the poet warrior, Mary. I don't know if you heard that, but they call him that. Yes. So when we go through all this, we'll talk about his life because he is certainly one of the, if not the most interesting people in the Civil War. He is. Who, somebody who, when we talk more about, you realize how famous he was mm-hmm. and how history has sort of let him fall by the wayside in comparative speaking to some of his other peers. So he's an interesting guy we talked about. We've kind of hinted at him here and there in different podcast episodes, like the Chickamauga one and some other ones. Which we were recording a year ago. And when this episode dropped, it's the anniversary of the first day of the Battle of Chickamauga. Mm -hmm. That's true. We are going to take what we like to call around these parts a deep dive and talk (laughs) about William Haynes' life. We might even mention some pop culture. Oh, wow. Holy moly. Going old school. Yeah. I like it. I like it. But so let's talk b- real quick. But before, before we, we get, get started, that... that's where I was going. Okay. I thought I was hosting this one time. <laughs> no. Okay, Mara, what are you drinking? I am drinking Double Jutsu, which is by Bellwoods Brewery out of Toronto, and it's an 8% IPA. And I think uh, General Lytle would have appreciated that beer because uh, he enjoyed himself a little bit of a drink. And I shouldn't just say here and there, but he was known for drinking. He certainly wasn't. What, what, are you drinking out of a specific I mug today, I don't have a cool mug like what? you have because i've seen yours already it is my george henry thomas mug when lytle dies he is killed on september 20th 1863 and that's when um actually thomas is most well known for at chickamauga is what happens on september 20th 1863 love the rock the rock mill springs <laughs> i'm drinking it's called mas macho double ip from new realm and it's from atlanta of all places mary and there's no correlation to anything except that's what i had so that's where i'm going tonight and I'm drinking out of my Freemason mug because William Haynes Lytle was a Freemason. We'll yes. talk about that during the episode as well. As we hinted at, we're going to talk about Lytle tonight. Now, interesting guy. We'll talk about his background. We're going to talk about some of the things he did leading up to the Civil War, what he did during the Civil War, and his impact after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So we're some quick bio information. Born on the 2nd of November in 1826 in Cincinnati, Ohio. Mary, the Queen that. City. The Queen City. Part of the elite Lytle family. They were a family of rich land surveyors, and they were just loaded to the gills with political connections. And that's going to pen benefit him as his life goes on. His father, Robert Todd Lytle, 
He was a congressman from Ohio's first district, also a lawyer. And for young William, he grew up with the world. The sky is limit. I oh, mean, the he world was such a great. I I can't imagine what his childhood was like because apparently, as a kid, he met President Andrew Jackson, and afterwards, he would walk around the house he lived in shouting Jackson. All he the was. Time. I mean, he had it all: handsome, blue eyes, brown hair, trim beard. One patriot hat short of me is what he really was, Mary. <laughs> Think about it. But he was a very likable guy, and everyone liked him. Mm-hmm. He attended Cincinnati College, which is now called the University of Cincinnati, where he studied law, became a lawyer after graduating and passing the bar exam. But he had that military blood in him as well. So he decided to join that second Ohio Volunteers as a captain mm-hmm. to go off and fight Mexico. Like many of the guys we've talked about yep. during this podcast, they all end up in Mexico. We're not going to spend too, too much time talking about his Mexican days because we're going to kind of we're going to talk about some of his more off the field stuff. Yeah. After the war, he won a seat with the Ohio State Legislature, but the other passion he really had, and this is what really makes him different what we kind of hinted at at the intro, is he had a real passion for his ability to write and connect with people. He, and that was something that did. really makes him unique. He did. And I think one thing to mention about him too is by the age of 15, he's having to shoulder a lot of responsibility because both his parents are dead by that point. His father passed away of tuberculosis when Lytle was 15, and his mother died two years later of the same disease. And so he's left to raise his two sisters, Josephine and Lily. The two of them just absolutely worshipped them, especially Lily. Like, there's a lot of correspondence um, from the Civil War where he is writing to Lily and Lily is writing to him. He does have the help of his grandmother to raise these two girls, and they they live in a mansion in Cincinnati. Like, as you said, becomes a lawyer. There's not He doesn't really see much action in Mexico at all. But yes, the poet is what he's known for. And it's what makes him into this celebrity. Now you look at somebody like William Tecumseh Sherman, who is known as a celebrity general, but it is after the Civil War. Lytle is a celebrity when he goes into fighting the Civil War. And that's because of his poetry. Mm-hmm. This is Elvis joining the army. It it's is. kind of what yeah, it is like, in like a lot think, of ways, right? Think of a celebrity that we know today. And that's what this guy is like. He's a household name, North and South. Um, he's, he's kind of like Carly Rae Jepsen. He's that famous. <laughs> I wonder right? if he ever call me, maybe. I wonder Probably if he said that to any of his girlfriends. Which, by the way, his love life is, you know, one of the things that plays into this image of him as a poet. Mm-hmm. Just really quick, he, he never marries, never has children that we know of. Uh, he was a little bit of a party boy, if you know what I mean. Um, kind of like... I don't. Kind of like Gouverneur K. Warren. The, his one thing was he tended to fall in love with his cousins. So he falls in lo- love with his first cousin, Lily, not to be confused with his sister, Lily, who is the daughter of his father, uh, father's sister, Eliza. Anyway, Lily's father opposes uh, the relationship for obvious reasons, and also because Lytle's reputation as a party boy and a heavy drinker. They break off their engagement in 1853. Uh, Sarah Elizabeth said Doramus is the other girl that he is uh, gets engaged to. She's a distant cousin. She's niece of the New Jersey governor, Daniel, ha- Daniel Haynes. And that's where the family connection comes into. Uh-huh. Early in 1855, so Lytle said to marry him and she declines. She was just bluffing. She was doing the whole, oh no. And then she expected that he would come at her again to ask and he never did. He broke it off. He said, we're done. And he wrote his sister, Lily, and said, Love, that star with me has set forever. So Sad is going to come into this later at the end of Mm -hmm. Lytle's story. We will see her again. But anyway, that is another thing that I think that I read about factors into this whole image of him being this this kind of this poet 
general. Writes his first poem at the age of 14 called The Soldier's Death. So right there, what you said, warrior poet, is really coming out. And his service in the Mexican War, even though he doesn't see much combat at all, if any, that inspires poems too. But he's best known for a poem called... Antony and Cleopatra, written in 1857. So he writes this poem. It becomes a national sensation. I mean, it goes completely viral. And what this does, it just catapults him into that national overnight celebrity. Just think about, you know, nowadays when somebody puts out a, a single song you know, or just goes crazy and they're famous overnight. That's what this was, except it was a poem. Now Lytle, he finds himself being escorting these these women to these balls and galas, and he's that guy. Yeah. But he's also a man's man. He's also going to the dive bars, like the ones in Goderich on a Friday night, <laughs> with his friends to play billiards and pool. That's who he is. So he's a man of the people men and women but what he tries to do is he's also he's one part military one part politician Mm -hmm. one part lawyer and now he's one part celebrity so what does he try to do he tries to parlay that celebrity status to run for u.s congress is what what he does as a democrat he doesn't win but he's going to ultimately end up running as democrat and supporting stephen douglas and yeah and before the war in 1860, he's going to join the Ohio State Militia as a major general right on the eve of the war. So he's kind of got so many things going on at the same time. Now, when the war does finally begin, he's promoted to a colonel of the 10th Ohio. He's sent to Western Virginia. Upon his commission, he is given a horse called Fa Abala. Yep. Okay. It's an Irish battle cry, which of course means clear the way, right? Anybody who's been to Gettysburg or even Antietam sees that phrase mm-hmm. on a lot of the monuments, especially on the uh, the second day stuff. He's going to help drive the Rebs out of what is now today West Virginia. So mm-hmm. he's going to be a big part of that. So now yeah. he's adding to that resume. September 10th, 1861, the Battle of Carnifex Ferry, which sounds a lot like Carfax, if you think about yeah. it. But it's Carnifex, right? He'll fight under William Rosecrans, which is a foreshadowing of something that's going to come later on. We'll talk yep. about. He's going to fight those rebels under John Floyd. Remember, remember John Floyd? Yeah. The former governor of Virginia, now to, over to the dark side. Rosecrans is going to defeat Floyd at this battle. We're not going to talk too, too many details about the battle. And it's going to drive him out of, of Western Virginia. Floyd is going to blame Brigadier General Henry Wise, who was also a former governor of Virginia. It's governor upon go- governor hate there who says Wise refused to give him support. Wise and Floyd just hate each other. They just just did because they really couldn't agree on who was kind of the superior Mm. on the battle. But this is the battle where the first time, really, where Lytle is going to be injured. He's going to take a hit here. He's going to be wounded in the left calf while riding that Fa'abala horse. And because of that, he's going to be off the sideline for four months to recover with this. While he's gone, he's going to be assigned... He's going to be assigned like a commander of Kentucky. He's going to end up in Kentucky in a military training camp in a town called Bardstown, Kentucky. So he'll be off the field for a little while, and he's going to miss a lot. He will eventually get back to the field where he's going to get a brigade now under a guy named Major General Ornsby Mitchell. His division, he was a former department of the Ohio. So real quick about Mitchell, he was the guy, I don't know if you knew this, Mary, he was the guy who conspired with James Andrews to steal that to train the general mm-hmm. that trained in Georgia from that Andrews raid. Now, Lytle is, while this is going on, he's going to help Mitchell organize his attacks on the Chattanooga Railroad kind of while Andrews is still in the train. Yeah. He kind of has a little intrigue into this, which is kind of cool at the beginning of his Civil War career. I mean, Lytle is wounded at, at Carnifax. That's the first time he gets wounded in battle. He has self, he has a self-inflicted wound 
as he makes right. his way to the Civil War, or as he's, you know, first joined the army. Anyway, he manages to shoot himself nearly in the foot one day when his just his pistol just kind of goes off in its holster. And then he's riding one night in the dark with and the horse trips no word if the horse was uh, into his flask or not, um, and fell down. And Lytle managed to just just barely misses getting crushed by the horse. So he's a little, this is another thing with him is he's kind of always like putting himself out there in a little bit. He's a little bit, I don't know if I want to say like accident prone almost, but he does get injured a few times as we're, as we're going to see um, in the Civil War. And the first one is self-inflicted. Now, jump ahead to October 8th, 1862. We're going to talk about the Battle of Perryville. Now, we're not going to talk in too, too much detail about mm-hmm. this battle because someone told me we were going to be doing a whole episode of Perryville in a couple of weeks. We are. And I was not allowed and I was not allowed to talk a lot about Perryville tonight. So I'm going to talk in generalities just so I don't get my butt yelled at. Okay. So he's going to okay. fight at the Battle of Perryville. Okay, well, let's see. And this is in the aftermath of Richmond, Kentucky in August of 1862, that rebel invasion of Kentucky we talked about. This is when, uh, when Bull Nelson, speaking of riding on a horse, you know, shouldn't have been, you know, he gets hit hard by Edmund Kirby Smith. This is while Second Manassas is going on, raging in the east around the same time. Now at Perryville, Braxton Bragg's army of Mississippi, they're fighting with Don Carlos Buell in the army of the Ohio. So you have Buell going towards Bragg at that part of Kentucky. Yep just after everything went on with, with what we talked about at the uh, in, in Richmond. So on October 8th, 1862, it's kind of the, the culmination of the Union trying to finally drive the Reds yeah. out of Kentucky. It begin, so it's, it's, it, it's basically like what begins with our episode about the Battle of Richmond. This is kind of the mm-hmm. bookend to that. Perryville is that final drive and Kentucky is going to stay under Union control. But this Battle of Perryville is a complete clusterfuck. Like, Buell finds himself again in the acoustic shadow, so he can't hear shit. Meanwhile, Lytle's brigade is currently, you know, getting their asses handed to them by none other than General Patrick Claiborne. Yeah, Lytle finds himself fighting with the First Corps and Alexander McCook, that third division under Lavelle Rousseau. He's got the 17th Brigade commanding, he's got the 42nd, 82nd, 42nd, 88th Indiana. 15th Kentucky, and the 3rd and 10th Ohio. Details we'll talk more about down the road. But Lytle, for lack of a better phrase, is ordered to march to Perryville by Rousseau, thinking the Rebs had vacated the dance floor at this point. Yeah. They're going to go and see what the scoop is. He's going to get there, and he's going to be standing on a ridge line, and he's going to look down, he's going to see a whole bunch of Rebs, probably a big barbecue going. Maybe it was a NASCAR <laughs> event, but, it looked, but whatever was going on, under Patrick Claiborne and Bushrod Well, Johnson. then clearly there was Lucky Charms. Oh, sure there was. That's probably exactly what it was. But they're looking down into this ravine, this canyon thing, and he sees all these Rebs, mm-hmm. and they're deploying into battle lines. So the Rebs have not vacated the dance floor. They are just coming up to the dance floor. Lytle ordered his brigade down that hill towards the Rebs, and it ends up into this two-hour artillery thing, back and forth and back and forth. Lytle is told to hold the ground basically as long as he can. Okay, we see what's going on. Just hold it. Not it last, you know, at all costs. Just hold it as long as you can, even when the artillery takes off, because he's in charge of an infantry, so he he's going to stay there. He's under a Michigander named Orlando Loomis. This artillery, they do leave, and they leave the infantry completely exposed. So it's kind mm-hmm. of the opposite in a lot of ways. The infantry runs, leaves the artillery. It's kind of the opposite. Yeah. Lytle's going to hold out and set up his battle line in a place called the Russell House. That's how where he's going to set up. And he's trying to get reinforcements. He's getting no reply at all. It's Friday night. Doesn't know where anybody is. Same deal. Okay. <laughs> he's trying. He's calling. No one's answering. No one's coming. No out. one's saying, Just call me, maybe. I don't know if he apologized the next morning. But 
who the hell knows, but they, either way, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> During the fight, Lytle is going to get hit. He's going to be hit in the head yep. with a piece of shrapnel behind his left ear, and it's going to leave his face completely and utterly covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Now, one of his sergeants, got a sergeant by the name of Dunbar, is going to try to help him. Lytle's going to say, leave me. I am done for. Basically, go help somebody else. I'm, I'm not yep. going to make it. I can do and no more. Like, Let me die here was one yeah. of the things he said to yeah. someone else, too. So he's basically left to die on the field with 265 of his yeah. 500 with, men. With more than 50% of his guys, yeah. he's left on the battlefield. Now, Lytle, to the surprise of a lot of people, doesn't die. He was dazed and confused sitting on a rock. But as we call that Tuesday night in Goderich. And he's, <laughs> and he's, and he's, holding, he's holding on to his sword. He's just sitting there kind of dumbfounded, holding a sword, sitting on a rock. And this sword, Mary, is, is not as good as the one I carry around with the battle. Nothing is as good, good as that. It's got a golden scabbard. It's yeah. diamond studded. It's a beautiful, beautiful sword. Yeah. He's going to be caught while he's sitting there, unfortunately. Uh, and that's going to be really the big part of the story with him in Perryville. He's found by Captain Blakemore, who is the adjutant for Bushrod Johnson, also a fellow Ohioan, but a guy that chose to fight for the Confederacy. Lytle does the whole thing like, oh, there's others on the field that need more help than me, but Blakemore can tell that he's really dazed and confused. Lytle goes and offers Blakemore his sword, and he's like, no, not gonna, I'm not gonna take it. He said, one who could command such men would never suffer such indignity. So he's not even gonna take his sword from him, which was a common practice at the time. So mm-hmm. Lytle is taken to Bushrod's tent. Bushrod takes one look at him and realizes he's one step away from just sitting there holding a pinwheel a la Hooker at Chancellorsville. Mm -hmm. And he's like, dude, we need to get you to the brigade surgeon. So that's what happens. But this is like another interesting part of the story, too. So he's not really taken prisoner, but he kind of is... No, he's, you know, know, the thing about, about Lytle is, you know, he, we'll talk about this going forward. He's so respected on both sides. And I think that is what is playing into this is that he he is, is, he's a, he's this guy that is, I think he's probably when he goes in the civil war, I don't know what you think, but I think he's probably better known than Grant and Sherman are at the beginning of the civil war. He is. And he's also known in the South as a Democrat who's not an abolitionist. And that's a big part of this because. When he is fine, when he is captured, and W.T. Blakemore catches him, and he refuses to take the sword, Lytle says Lytle actually praised the Confederates to Blakemore. He said mm-hmm. the Confederates had matchless bravery and undaunted courage. He says so. He gets you know he gets caught. He gets taken to uh, a guy named Doctor Gentry, his hospital, where he's going to Gentry's going to take all Lytle's valuables and hold them safe for him. Mm-hmm. He's going to take his stuff away. There's that sort of one of William Hardy staff guys tried to steal that sword. Bushrod Johnson found out about it and threatened to court-martial a guy until he gave his sword back. But to your point, Lytle's taken to a place called Harrodsburg, Kentucky, as a prisoner. Now, he stays at the home of a guy named Colonel Bowman. It's like an apartment sitting around yeah. hanging out. They're, they're very cordial. It's not a, not a jail. He's having a, Not only he was having a great time. But he is taken care of very, very well. The one thing that Lytle was afraid of, he was afraid that his girlfriend, whoever it was. Probably said. Said and his sisters would be, yeah, because Lytle's not married. So it would be his, Lily and Josephine and and Seth. It was whatever his, his, his phrase was wife, but I think it was whatever women in his life, were afraid that they thought he was dead. And Mm -hmm. he didn't want them thinking he was dead. So he asked the rebels if he could send a messenger through the lines to go see across the Don Don Carlos Buell. Just to let them know, hey, let them know I'm alive. I'm okay. Things are yep. good. I'm, I'm hanging out watching Scooby-Doo with the Reds here. Just having a good time. Just having, I'm fine, okay? So the rebels offer to let him be the messenger. And they and Bragg approves it. And they're going to parole him immediately and tell him 
you'd be ready to go within a half an hour. We're going to get you back yeah. there. He's going to ride back in a union to the union line on an ambulance wagon under a flag of truce. The deal, I mean, he was being paroled, but he still couldn't get in future battles until he was formally exchanged. Yeah. So he was not formally exchanged until until the 10th of January, 1863. Mm -hmm. So that means he misses Stones River. He does, right? yep. And when he is paroled, he's got to go testify at an inquiry against Buell's handling or lack thereof, which I'm sure we will discuss in our episode about Perryville. But the one thing that Lytle does is he, he plays this, like, he's a lawyer, and he does, like, you know, it's kind of like Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln movie. You remember that part where Lincoln uses that lawyer's dodge? To, to it's get a lawyer's dog. Yeah, to, to do like, there's nobody here. There's no commissioners here. As far as I know. As far as I know. Well, what does Lytle do? He refuses to talk of his time when he's behind enemy lines. And that's because of something in his parole where it said he was not to reveal anything that I might have discovered within the line of the enemy. And again, I think this goes back to this whole thing about how he's like, might play into that the fact that he's a Democrat. He mm -hmm. has a lot of friends that are fighting for the South as well. But also, he's just not talking. He He's playing the lawyer in this part. So he doesn't talk at all about what he finds out behind enemy lines. And we all know that what happened, like Lytle's testimony does nothing to help Buell. And he's removed from command. And this is why you have Rosecrans back in command for, as you said, Stones River, which Lytle does not participate in that battle. But what happens at that battle is General Joshua Sill is killed. And he is the one that is leading the 1st Brigade of the 3rd Third Division of the 20th Corps of the Army of the Cumberland. Lytle is going to inherit this command. The one thing that I found surprising in my research is that it took a long time for Lytle to get here, for Lytle to get such a high command. And the reason for this is he was passed over many times. And that's because his, you know, his days as a politician, there were rumors flying around that he was a heavy, heavy drinker. And that's how they went at people in this day is they would find out something about somebody, you know, somebody probably saw Lytle partying one night, a little bit drunk. And the rumor just... Lytle must have, must have called someone and said, call me maybe to somebody. He probably what? did. He probably hit call me maybe time and called one too many people. But there was, you know, rumors flying around when he was involved in politics, when he was in Ohio. But then the same rumors started flying around again when he um, had started fighting in the Civil War. And these are clearly from his rivals. Think a lot like what Halleck did to Grant. I think it's a very uh -huh. similar situation to that. So rumors are going around that he's a heavy drinker and he's being passed over for command. His sister Lily wrote him at one point and said, it cannot pain you half as much to read that my brother as it pains me to write. But when you know that promotions, respect and everything you are ambitious of awaits your abstaining from the vile poison, it is incomprehensible to me why you have not the moral courage to abandon it forever. And Lytle's like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'll abandon it. Meanwhile, he said that, he's he said to a few close friends, he said that because of lack of promotion, he said that he threatened to settle my private accounts with cowardly miscreants who have maligned me once the war's over shit's about to go down when it's over. So he's basically said he's going to find the people that are spreading these rumors about him that had prevented him from getting this promotion. But you mm -hmm. flash forward to after Stones River, Sill is killed. Lytle is, you know, has this promotion that he's probably wanted for quite a while. Yeah, he's going to get that first brigade under Phil Sheridan, his division, Army of yeah. the Cumberland. Guys from Illinois, uh, 21st Michigan, 24th Wisconsin. That's who he's going to get. 
while again fighting with Rosecrans again, going back to his Carnifex days. So it's getting the old band back together again. So they're getting that back together again. Yeah. So they're all resting at Stones or a battlefield because this is where they rest for a while. What's interesting about this whole thing is the land that Lytle was on at this point it was West Ford at Stones River, okay? Mm-hmm. He finds out that that land was owned by one of his relatives, yeah. Lytle. That's such okay? a cool part who, of the story. Who, who owns it for 60 years. He's The town he bought it back in 1813. And it's right near where the Union camped at, uh, at Crest Lawn. For seven months, they're sitting on this area on the land that his relative owned. So while he's in camp with Rosecrans' army at Stones River, he starts to look around. He pulls out the yellow pages <laughs> and he starts to realize he's got relatives in the area. They're all rebel sympathizers. He's like, shit, I... I know people here. So yep. he decides to no- start knocking on doors. He writes to his sister, Lily, and says, I took supper last night at Mr. Lytle's. He's one of the richest men in Tennessee with a large quantity of Negroes, a third wife, whatever the hell that means, Mary. <laughs> the 3,000 acres of land and 16 children. Okay. Probably because of the three wives. Mm-hmm. I found Lytle's scattered all around town and on fine plantations in every direction. Well, no so wonder this like, one oh, Lytle is probably the reason why they're scattered yeah. all around town. And, and the guy you mentioned, you know, so he finds that his cousin, Frank Lytle, yeah. a lieutenant with the 18 Tennessee, is sitting in a jail in a prisoner of war. So he helps him secure his parole. Yeah. So he's sitting here. And it's, it must have been a small world frame. Now, again, the Lytle family was a rich and privileged family in the country at the time. So it's not a surprise, but it must have been something to find out that he had family where he was staying. Because everything yeah. was coming up Lytle. Personally, I like to know what the third wife thing's all about. What that even means. <laughs> it's like, who knows? It's uh, it's a bit different not, at that time, I think. We're, we're, um, not, the, we're not here to judge. No, the, the other thing, too, that Lytle does at this time, just bringing Sed back into the story, you know, this woman that he's basically is like, I'm done with you. But it, in a way, it's kind of not really. He writes his sister, Lily. He confirms to her this attachment that he still has to Sed. And he says that, tell her that I will never forget her and if I survive the war, I hope to meet her again. So even though he's broken off this engagement, which I'm wondering if it was kind of like a, you know, just I'm too proud and she was too proud to like, you know, accept it. But, you know, he's still writing to Lily, his sister, and, and clearly he's still thinking of said, which is, uh-huh. you know, this is a part of Lytle's story that I don't think gets talked about a lot. But again, it, it's like any of these guys, it makes them more human to know that there's this happening with them as well during the war. It's not all about the war. They're thinking about their loved ones back home too. Well, I think that's important. We, we talk about it. Just don't forget too, Lytle is a, he's a poet. He's passionate. Oh, he is. Right? He's so, ro- he's, he said like, he's kind of like, he's probably one of the more, I think, romantic figures in the Civil War. And that's what makes him so interesting. I was trying to think about, you know, in my head, I try and figure out what what they would have sounded like when they spoke. And the voice I hear is Gary Oldman with an American accent. Very soft spoken. Yeah, yeah very, very could have been. I mean, but he's somebody who was wore his heart on his sleeves, yeah, who absolutely. lived life with the passion that you can only dream about. Yeah. He lived, he, you know, he, he fought. Everything he did was with passion. When we talk about his demise here, which we're going to talk about next, the Battle of Chickamauga in September of 1863, you know, we'll talk about how it was a culmination of almost everything he wrote 
and everything he read. Yeah. He died the way he lived. Mm -hmm. He lived, he died a chivalrous soldier's death he that did. he wrote about many, many times. So September 20th, 1863, was the third day of the Battle of Chickamauga. We'll talk about that. And this is where Lytle is going to meet Bushra Johnson again. It won't be as cordial as the last time they met at Perryville when they were buds. This is, you know, battle time now. So the battle's raging on the third day. We talked about Chickamauga. We're not going to talk about everything. But, but James Longstreet had that big assault on yep. the, with that 11,000 men assault that Bushrod Johnson led, that big breakthrough we talked about on the yep. third day. Yep. Now, Lytle, he's sitting on a horse on a rise, which is now called Lytle Hill. Mm -hmm. Cannot be a coincidence. So he's sitting here, Lytle is on his horse, watching as the Union troops are getting smoked by this oncoming rebel wave, this gray wave of yep. 11,000 guys coming right up their savannah. Okay, and, and and he they're fighting right in the face of this rebel assault. Okay, the rebs are coming straight at him with that rebel yell. Right, he says, "Well, if I must die, I will die as a gentleman." And then you know what he does? He puts his gloves on, which I always thought was a yeah. Bomb. No, that's such a cool story. And apparently, Lytle woke up that morning of the twentieth very, very gloomy. Poet, that's what you often think, right? They're kind of moody, kind of like me. I think I'm no poet, though. Let's face it. Although you do say Nantucket a lot. I do. I do, Walker. Um, anyway, the, the 19th of September, Lytle and his men are at Lee and Gordon's mill. They haven't seen much action in the battle. And of course, Lytle's probably feeling like, well, you know, what the hell? But all of a sudden, they've got to like, it's like, we need you here and we need you here two hours ago kind of thing. So he's got to boot it to where he's going to be on the 20th. His aide de camp, Alfred Pirtle, said that it was almost like Lytle had a premonition of his death because uh -huh. just before the battle began on the 20th, Lytle sat with Priddle and he put his arm around him and the two of them had a father-son relationship. So Lytle's a man that has never had kids and Priddle saw this guy as, as a father and Lytle says to him, my boy, do you know we are going to fight two to one today? And it was almost as if Priddle like knew that Lytle had a premonition of his own death and Priddle said of him, how I did love Lytle. He was as warm hearted as a woman underneath it all. And it was Sheridan who passed the news on to Lytle that Longstreet was at Chickamauga. And that's when Lytle realized that they were going to be outnumbered. And one of the things that Lytle says to Pirtle before the fight begins is that he asked that Pirtle stick by him no matter what happens. And so there he is, as you said, throwing his gloves on, getting ready to go into this horrific fight. And right where he is, as you said, is like, if you look at a battle map, there's Lytle, there's a gigantic gap by about 1130 in the morning, and there's everybody else. Just like at Perryville, he's been left on his own to fight. Yeah, he gets he gets stranded. He's out there all by himself. You know, and the battle's raging on the 20th. You know, he's still the chivalrous soldier. He's still the, the knight on the horse. Mm -hmm. He turns to his brigade, that first brigade, and he says, All right, men, we can die but once. This is the time and place. Let us charge. If we whip them today, we will eat our Christmas dinners at home. He knows the scoop, but you know he's going to get these guys going. So Lytle's guys, they advance, but they fall apart pretty quick. I mean, the, yeah. the numbers tell the story. Hinman's just coming right at them so hard and such like the men described it as like you could see literally the whites of the eyes of the enemy. That, that's how close these guys get at some point. And even Lytle starts getting shaken by this. Like he, the 21st Michigan breaks at one point and Lytle says, for God's sake, bring up another regiment. You know, like he's wondering where, where is everybody? Where's the support that we need? You know, mm -hmm. nobody knows what's happening. 
Oh, it turns into this quagmire at the bottom of the hill of just hand-to-hand combat, fighting and Lytle the entire time is sort of riding along that ridge. You know, he's riding on that horse. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the inevitable is going to happen. He's riding along and he's saying, brave boys, brave boys. And he's always like that, you know, and he's out in front. He's one of these soldiers, you know, a lot like Reynolds was like out in front. you're, You're fighting with your men and you're trying to rally them. And that's when he gets wounded. He's got he takes a few hits and, and one of them he's with Pirtle at the time and Pirtle can tell he's wounded and he takes a hit in the spine and he just says, Pirtle, I am hit. And Pirtle wrote in his diary afterwards that that his heart almost like Pirtle's heart almost stopped when he heard that because Lytle was just kind of sitting there, you know, and he's just like, I'm hit. And then Pirtle said, where? And Lytle said, in the spine. If I have to leave the field, stay here and see that the fight goes right. So Lytle's recognizing that maybe he doesn't have a lot of time left on the field at that point, but he insists on staying. He stays with his men during it. He's going to stay with his men, but he's going to get hit a few more times. He does. He's going, yep. to, hit, he's going to get hit three more times. One's going to hit him in the face, three more times in the body. And he's going to fall off that horse. And the report is blood was pouring from his neck. Yep. He was hit okay. when he was hit as he was giving um, one of his captains, Captain Green, an order. And the bullet is said to have just like went right in his mouth and then exited near his eye. And uh-huh. he just fell into Green's arms. And as you said, like the blood was going everywhere. It was a very horrific wound. But the uh-huh. thing is, is Lytle doesn't die right away. Like he's still alive and he he lives for a little while after this mortal wound happens he does and his last words like you were saying brave brave boys yeah his last words he yep. finally died so the thing about it is you know that every you know battle of chickamauga we've talked about and you know i'm sure we'll talk about again but that's not the whole story I mean, you know it, 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 that's not the whole story no. what's interesting about the whole story is with chickamauga is really what happens with Lytle after he's killed, right? It is, yeah. And this is where the whole Freemason story yep. comes in, okay? Mm-hmm. He was a Freemason. Although the lodge is unknown, it's likely would have been somewhere in Ohio, probably in Cincinnati, right? The rebels are going to recognize his body as being down. Yep. Now, I mentioned before we talked about how well he was taken care of when he was at Colonel Bowman's house, right? Yep. Back in Perryville and how well he was taken care of by guys like Bushrod Johnson, guys like W.T. Blakemore and those guys, how well they were taken care of. Well, they recognize his body and they place a guard around it. The guards who are all guarding him are all Freemasons. They're protecting his body, okay? That night, many of the Confederates are going to sit around a campfire and recite his poetry. Now, again, we talked before about how well his words resonated. When he was 14 years old, you mentioned this poem before. Back in 1840, he wrote a poem called The Soldier's Death. It goes... When mortals by the wayside passed, the soldier's last deep breath had flown. With naught to cheer save the midnight blast, on the battlefield he had died alone. And this was the big fear in 19th century America. His poetry epitomized what was known as the good death, that Victorian era death. where You die with people, loved ones around you, at peace with God. That was the good death. And this is what the Civil War robbed the people of because there was no more good death. So they lived that good death through Lytle's poetry. Yeah. And that's why it was so popular. What was absent from that normal type of, of life and death, it lived in his poetry. And that's why yes. it made him so popular on the battlefield. And that's why he was but, so relieved you know, that you know the soldiers relate to what he's saying. And you know that um, one that opening line from Antony and Cleopatra, I am dying, Egypt dying, was a catchphrase in homes in the north and south. This is another reason why Lytle is, again, it goes back to that celebrity. 
you know, he's got this thing that's a catchphrase, but, you know, he's also written this poetry based off age 14, like you're writing those words, like, and you've never had that experience as a soldier, but Mm. you're able to write it and capture it. So the men are able to relate to it. And his poetry is recited at the campfires on both sides, especially, you know, on the Southern side. Um, And as you said, the good death, like Lytle's able to kind of capture that. He had he had a way of describing war in a very Shakespearean or Greek yes. war hero way. Yeah, but it, but it talked about valor and duty, fighting for something bigger than yourselves. I think the thing about it though is him dying kept a lot of the criticism away that guy like Joshua Chamberlain didn't get kept away. Absolutely. Right now it was a, it was a night and day apples and oranges thing what they both did. Yeah. Because what what he did is he talked about it during the time. You know, so he, so when in, in absence of concept of death at that time, they lived in his poetry. It wasn't just talked about later. He had that one poem. I'm just going to read a quote from it. It says, I gazed forth from my wintry tent upon the star gemmed firmament. I gazed till the sun, the drums rolled at dawn. He comes, he comes. And he's talking about death. That's what yep. he's talking about. And this is the fear that the soldiers all live with at the time. When he died and the rebel soldiers saw he died, it's almost like a part of what they were living for died as well. Yeah. Right. Because his words epitomized to them what they were fighting for. He's living his and, words now, right? Right. And he lived the way he died is the way he lived. And he mm-hmm. lived and he died the way his poetry was written. So you, it's not a surprise that the rebels in this case protected him especially that he was a Freemason. He was protected by that. And he's somebody who, you know, would have been a much bigger deal politically if he had lived, but he also had that living out his poetry type of life. His life, he lived the way he wrote and he wrote the way he lived and he died the way he wrote and he died probably exactly the way he wanted to. Exactly. Oh, no, I, I completely agree with you. I, I, I think he did. The story of him being a Freemason was initially what attracted me to studying him more because I was very, very intrigued by that, you know, hearing that the men who all guarded him were Freemasons and that they were protecting his body his poetry being recited on both sides and just this high level of respect. You know, you have Confederates coming to pay their respects hours after he's passed away. And, you know, the one thing that was found on on him was a Maltese cross that had been given to him by the 10th Ohio. And it was given to him 11 days before he died. And I'm sure you will correct me if I'm wrong in this, but the Maltese cross is very much a Freemason symbol, is it not? No, you're not going to say you're not going to say yes or no on that. Um, I'm sorry, you for you cut off for a second. <laughs> okay, so he is given this Maltese cross, whether it's the Freemason thing or not. I hate them, by the way. He's given this by his men of the 10th Ohio, who he's no longer commanding at this point, but they wanted to give him a right. parting gift. So when they give that to him 11 days before he dies, he gives a speech and he says, "It may not be for all of us here today to listen to the chants that greet the victor." nor to hear the brazen bells ringing out the new nuptials to the states. But those who do survive can tell how their old comrades died with their harness on the great war for union and liberty. So it's almost like even there, he's speaking very poetically. Whether he has a premonition of his death or not, I think that really ties into what you just said about he died how he would have wanted to. He died this kind of warrior poet on the battlefield. But the thing with Lytle is that he's not as well known as someone like a Sherman or a Grant or Chamberlain, yet he goes into the Civil War probably as one of the best-known figures, I think. I think at the beginning of the Civil War, if you said William Tecumseh Sherman, a lot of people might have been like, who is that? But if you said William Haynes Lytle, I think he would have had a lot of people knowing who he was. 
No, I think most people, I think at the time, you talk about famous people and, you know, you yeah. mentioned Sherman and Chamberlain. They were famous because of what they did in the war. This is a guy who was famous when he went into the war. Yeah. But he was also a celebrity who fought in the war. He did, wasn't a celebrity who just was there. He actually fought. He fought and he fought and very he, hard too. And he came up with that catchphrase, I'm dying, Egypt dying. Exactly. It's not exactly Asa La Vista, baby, like it is today. No, or, you know, you know but, I made but, him an offer he couldn't refuse. But yeah, I think at, but, you know, but I I think know, at but, the time, probably was, it was a catchphrase. Like, we're not living in that time, so we don't know, like, how often it was said. But it sounds like it was said, like, you know, to be known as a catchphrase. Like, I think you've... Right you've kind of made it, you know, and even though it's like, it seems so simple, I am dying, Egypt dying, but then people who had read his poem probably remembered that whole poem. And the whole poem is actually like, it's quite a beautiful poem. I can see why the soldiers liked it so much. Like it's, I mean, he's living at a very different time than what we are, right? Where we have songs like, call me maybe. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> but I think he's someone that's important to study because he's someone who fought. He come, he was someone who very easily, from his privileged background, could avoid the war altogether. Yeah, he probably could have stayed in Ohio, but again, he chose to fight and he chose to lead in the fight. Yeah, and, that's and he a- found he and he also found a way to be left behind and stranded many times. He didn't back away from it. He was always right no, at the front. He, 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 he never he, he never did. Um, and the one thing that was found on him when he was killed was a few lines of poetry that he'd written for his sisters. And he wrote, In for me the applause of men, the laurel won by sword or pen, but for the hope so dear and sweet to lay my trophies at your feet. And he wrote that for, for Josephine and Lily. People don't write like that anymore. No, that no. But just like, you know, that that's what he wrote for his sisters, which shows like that's who he's he's probably he could who knows when he wrote that if it was like hours before he was killed or days or whatever but it's like it's I think it goes back to the whole thing like this is how he he wanted to die is as the soldier the kind of the the warrior poet as we said the confederates guard he has a confederate guard around his body they're freemasons like there's officers that come to pay their respects many of them were Lytle's friends and one of them a guy named Anderson he took a ring from Lytle several photographs and a lock of hair to send back to Josephine and Lily in case Lytle doesn't make it back, you know, his body, in case his body for some reason doesn't make it back to Ohio. Confederate surgeon E.W. Thomason, who had served under Lytle in the Mexican War, was there, and he said he was as good a man ever lived, even if he did have on the Yankee clothes. So he's still respected, even though he's fighting on the other side. So he's actually initially buried on the Confederate side, and he shares an ambulance with a guy named James D. Snott. And Knott is asked before, do you mind sharing the ambulance with him? And Knott is, he's mortally wounded. And he says, no, that's fine. By the time they both get to the Confederate hospital, Nod is dead. And they're both buried side by side. A few days later, Lytle's body is disinterred. And he's taken under the flag of truce and given to the first regiment he commanded, the 10th Ohio. He's taken back to Cincinnati, Ohio, where there is one of the largest funerals for that time took place. October 22nd, he lays in state for a day. It is said who keeps a vigil by his side for the entire time he's lying in state. And the one thing that said vowed when he broke off things with her was that she was going to wait until he got married before she did. She never marries. So it's a very sad, like that's a very sad part of the story too, is, you know, again, we see someone else affected by the death of a soldier. So very similar to what happens to James B. McPherson, as well as to Claiborne their fiancés are left behind as well. Now, Sad is not his fiancé, but she's made this vow that I'm going to wait till he gets married, you know, just so I know for sure kind of thing. But the fact she keeps a vigil 
and the fact that, you know, he's still writing to her or not writing to her, but writing of her to his sisters says that she she's clearly still on Lytle's mind while he's alive. So Lytle's going to be buried at Spring Grove Cemetery, which is an absolutely gorgeous cemetery in Cincinnati, Ohio. Garfield, James Garfield, future president of the United States, is going to be one of his pallbearers. Joseph Guthrie, who was, I believed he served on Lytle's staff, is going to lead the riderless horse at the funeral procession, in which Lytle's boots are going to be placed they place them in backwards for the riderless horse. And as I said, one of the largest funerals at the time in Cincinnati. His monument there is close to the entrance of Spring Grove, and it's absolutely beautiful. I've never seen it before, but I've seen pictures. I've been to the cemetery, but for some reason didn't go see his monument. But yeah, he he is a warrior poet. He's a true soldier. He's a Freemason, and he's a guy that goes into the Civil War as a celebrity. A lot of these guys are coming out of it as celebrities like Grant and Sherman. This is a guy that's going into it. Like, think of a famous singer today. I don't know any famous singers like 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 that are in the top 20 right now. No, just, 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 don't, just don't say Dave Matthews. No. Oh, God, no. Ew. No, I'm not comparing him to Dave Matthews. Or think of a catchphrase that you know by someone who's a celebrity or a singer. That is William Haynes Lytle in his mm-hmm. day right there. Well, I think we did him justice today, Mary. I think we did. We did I think too. not a lot of people spent a lot of time on Williams Haynes Lytle. I think he's somebody like many of the, the I don't want to say he's nameless and faceless, like our friend Lisa says, but he's somebody who certainly the average person is not going to know. Yep. Somebody in the 1860s certainly knew him, but people in the 2021 era certainly don't. So hopefully we gave him his due. So that being said, what is next? So next, we are going to be doing a episode with another history podcast about battlefield preservation, which I'm sure we will be able to reveal more details about that soon. Then we are going to be back into the battles again, and we are going to be discussing Corinth. And then very soon after that, we are going to be discussing Perryville. So we're going to be revisiting Perryville again soon. So we thought it was quite, you know, not only did we want to uh, talk about Lytle for the anniversary of Chickamauga, which is this weekend when this episode drops, but, you know, just because we have Perryville coming up as well and we thought that was a good way to kind of segue into that and also just to tell his story of this guy that you know might not be as well known as some of the other generals in the civil war oh it's good you know we talk about battles we talk about different things but it's nice sometimes to just focus on a guy and talk about his impact especially somebody who i think history is kind of left by the wayside a little bit Now, a lot of people who probably listen to this podcast know who he is Mm -hmm. but he's not someone who's going to be taught in 11th grade social studies any school anytime soon and that's too bad but it's why we study this stuff. And as we study this stuff, we discover people. And as we discover people, we understand more about humanity and what really went into this war, which was a war of people fighting, pe- fighting people. And every one of these people had their own background, their own stories, and not all of them gets talked about. And no, that's and especially the do it, so. and especially the impact you know that it has on others in his life. Like you know, who knows how his sisters, especially Lily, who was very close to him, was affected by his death. And then you have said, who apparently never marries those women. They don't have a voice in history at all. And that's another important thing right there is just to remember them as well, that they deserve remembrance too. Um, And they were part of Lytle's life and they were all very affected by his death. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mary, I think this was a good episode. It's a lot of fun to talk about him and a lot of these other things. So exciting stuff down the pike. By the time this drops, we'll have our third trivia contest yes right? yep. third so we'll be do that so congratulations to leonard again for sure <laughs> for winning because he um, probably did for winning i'm sure he did but in case he didn't well, better luck next time so we have a lot of fun stuff coming up the live will be on saturday and we got some other fun stuff coming up down the road to your point we about pre- uh, battlefield preservation yep. and of course the book club with kate down the road yes. so mary again 
Great time as always. The pleasure, like I've said many times, as always, you know. Mine. All yours. Fucker. Anyway, so so off we go. So thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. Episode 56 is in the books. We are on the road to episode 57 yep. and beyond. So, Mary, great night. Have a great night for you as well. We will talk to you soon. Yep. And everybody who listens, have a great rest of the week. Have a great beginning of the weekend. And hope all is well in your little world. Yep. And I toast you for 56 yeah, episodes. Exactly. Thanks for bringing it. And it was awesome. I love discussing that with you. And thank you to it's all always a lot of fun for all your support over the last 56 episodes. We really appreciate yeah. it. It's always fun. It's always fun. Yeah. So good night, everybody. Good day, everybody, depending on when you listen to this. Yep. Nighttime here. So <laughs> off we go. Hey. So, Mary, we will talk to you soon. Peace out, everybody. We will see you all on the other side. See you guys later. <laughs>